Welcome to the Language Lab with David. Um, and uh, what I want to do here is begin to provide parents through this medium of a podcast with information for their students who are classified as what's called emergent bilinguals in public schools. Um, I am a, what you might refer to as or know as an ESL teacher or here I'm referred to as a language acquisition specialist, which is a big fancy title to say that my job is to support students in public schools. I work in an elementary school whose parents have uh, other languages in the home, and so my job is to support those students in school with uh, learning the English language as well as having access to curriculum standards in a way that they can uh, meaningfully understand and uh, work with. Uh, so that's just a little bit about me. And um, for a long time, uh, I've, I've kept most of the stuff of what I do in the school. But um, the longer I've, I do this, and this is my 16th year uh, in education, I think it's 16. Um, the longer I do this, the more that I'm starting to realize that the biggest lever we have to pull on as educators is the parent lever. That is to say, the students who seem to, to um, do the best in school. I'm, I'm going with a most often of the time are the students that have parents who understand what's going on in the school and uh, support uh, in concert with what the school is doing and support a good educational environment at home for their for their students. And so I think what I've seen a lot of in the past is that many parents who may not speak English very well um, come to schools who may or may not provide an interpreter for them, and they sort of defer a lot of the responsibility to the school. Um, and that may be for cultural reasons. It may be um, for other reasons. But um, I feel like what, what I want to try to provide is a a basis or a starting point for these parents in particular, um, parents who speak other languages at home to understand and be as, in, as involved as they can be with their students' uh, education in order to support it. Um, so I'm just going to start doing some from sharing some information and hopefully hope that you find it um, helpful if somehow you've stumbled across this. So I guess what I want to do in this this first episode is um, answer the question, who are EBs and why do they matter? And I guess we need to define what is an EB. So um, in the state of Texas, uh, EB stands for Emergent Bilingual. And these are students who the school has identified as not proficient in English. 
so it is a classification of students in the school um, who the school has identified as a student who is not totally proficient in the English language. Now, what the state wants to recognize with emergent bilingual is that that student is emerging as a bilingual student because it's our hope that the child will continue to develop their home language. Um, in Texas, it's actually uh, required by law that schools provide bilingual education. Now, there's a lot of stipulations about how and and how that's that's done. And most schools that are providing bilingual education are providing bilingual education in Spanish um, because they're able to actually staff a program uh, with certified teachers in that target language. But I don't want to go into too much detail about that, but the, underneath the term EB is basically stating that this is child is an emergent bilingual, that they are they have a language, they have their home language, but then they're also developing English, and so they're a developing bilingual student. Um, other terms that you may be aware of that have been used in the in the past are English learner, English language learner or ESL for English as a second language. So the state usually updates this terminology to try to reflect, I guess, what the intent of the program is. But so who they are is students who um, are developing the English language. Now, how do schools know that a student is developing the English language? Well, if you have a student in public schools, um, then you may remember when you register, the first time you register your student, you complete what's called a home language survey. This is a required registration form that schools are required by the state to collect. Um, and it basically has, well, now it has three questions, but typically in the past it's had two questions. And the questions are, what language is most often spoken in your home? And then the second question is, what language does your child speak most often? And now the third question refers to, is there ever been a time that your child was in a home or a placement where um, there was another language spoken? Uh, so so if, any, if the answer to any of those questions is a language other than English, even if... Uh, families put Spanish English for for one of those on the same line. It will um, basically what happens is that that the school then has to assess that student for English language proficiency. So uh, someone, if they do the job like that I do in the school, I get those home language surveys. They're given to me by the by the um, the registration. Um, person at the school who handles the registration and then I get the students information and I provide them with the state approved language proficiency test. In the state of Texas we use what's called loss links or pre-loss. If your student is kindergarten, uh, preschool, kindergarten, or first grade they're only going to be assessed with oral language proficiency that is a listening and speaking test. If your student is second grade through 12th grade, 
then they will be given the Lost Links, which is a computer-based test that has an assessment in the four language domains of listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And if a student scores below proficiency in any one of those domains, they'll be classified as an emergent bilingual student. So there's pretty, it's a pretty wide range of proficiencies that can uh, classify a student as emergent bilingual from the very beginning, they don't speak any English, they have zero knowledge of the language, to they have a, they have a pretty advanced knowledge of the language, but it may not still be uh, an advanced proficiency. So the schools will always want to err on the side of caution and being able to provide students with supportive services that they may be entitled to. Now, so the next question is, why does this matter? Why do schools do this? Why is this a required registration form? Um, why are schools, public schools, that is, required to provide these services? Well, um, if you're familiar or not, there was a very important piece of legislation passed in the 1960s um, in the Civil Rights Act. And so in the Civil Rights Act, which is federal law, basically prohibited any discrimination based on race, color, national origin, and programs that receive have anything to do with the, the, the public funds or public um, anything in the public sphere. So obviously schools receive public money, schools receive local money, schools receive state money, and schools also receive federal money. So um, there were a couple landmark cases, Supreme Court cases that made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court that really have set the stage for emerging bilingual students. And so I just want to give you a short summary of two of these very important cases that really have set the foundation for all of the services that emergent bilingual students receive in, in the schools in, in the United States. The first of these landmark cases is Lau versus Nichols. Um, this was a case in 1974 that went to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, in the end, it expanded the rights of, of EB students. And uh, so a little bit of background for this case was is that this was in California and uh, in San Francisco in particular and about 3,000 students who didn't speak English English were receiving limited English instruction in the city's public schools. So basically uh, um, there were some other uh, the families and other people on behalf of these students filed a lawsuit against the the district's board of education, and they claimed that the school's failure to provide them with either English language instruction or instruction in their native language violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which we talked about earlier, by prohibiting based on discrimination based on race, color, or national origin in the programs that receive federal funding. So uh, the case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the students. They basically said that not providing English language instruction or instruction in the student's native language who didn't speak English, the district was in violation of the Civil Rights Act. 
So one of the quotes from one of the justices said, uh, there's no equality of treatment merely by providing students with the same facilities, textbooks, teachers, and curriculum for students who do not understand English. Uh, are effectively foreclosed from any meaningful education. So if you're not providing them with something explicitly addressing their needs, then basically what the Supreme Court is saying is that you're not providing them an education. Um, So this really was the landmark decision that changed how public schools uh, had to support uh, English learning students. Um, So these this, these these uh, factors are still being worked out. You know whether you can believe it or not. Um, school districts are still working to try to figure out the best ways to address the needs of emergent bilingual uh, students. But nonetheless, this was the court case that opened the door or laid the groundwork for bilingual education programs, as well as what you may have heard to is English as second language programs um, or programs that were designed to make uh, emerging bilingual students or students learning English to provide them with equitable access to curriculum and language instruction. So huge, huge decision uh, by the Supreme Court of the United States that has affected education since the decision. Uh, the second um Supreme Court case that I believe is important. This one was in 1982. It was actually in Texas, and um, it's called Plyer versus Doe. It's another Supreme Court case. That this one uh, a little bit different, but it involved the rights of undocumented immigrant children to receive a public education in the United States. So basically, Texas in 1975 resi- revised its education laws to withhold state funds from local school districts for educating children who were not legally admitted into the United States. So the law authorized local school districts also to deny enrollment to such students. So. Uh, There was a school district um, in Texas who then decided to charge an annual tuition to undocumented students to compensate for the loss of state funding because the state withdrew funding for those students. So basically there were some families of undocumented uh, Mexican children who could not afford the tuition, and they filed a class action lawsuit against the superintendent of the school district. Uh, They argued that the Texas law violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, um, which basically says that everyone gets equal treatment under the law. So this was an interesting one. Uh, It was a really close decision. It was a 5-4 decision of the Supreme Court, and they ruled in favor of the students. the there was a justice writing for the majority argued that the Texas law imposed a lifetime hardship on a discrete class of children not responsible for their status. So I think that's key, um, and that the court determined that the law did not further um, it didn't further uh, improve the state's interest, right? Uh, and so they basically said denying education would foreclose any realistic possibility that they would contribute even in the smallest way to the progress of our nation. Um, 
and that punishing children for their parents' actions did not align with the traditional notions of justice. Uh, so this was a huge, also, case in that it clearly defined that schools have an interest not in any other thing than educating the children who show up at their doors, and any public school, that is. So because they're basically saying these these students, irregardless of their immigration status, are in your community, and that there's an interest in educating those kids, and that there's, if you refuse to educate them, then there is no chance in a way that they'll be able to meaningfully contribute to the society in which they find themselves in at no fault of their own. So those are two really landmark cases for public schools in working with emergent bilingual students um, and really trying to define what is the role of public education in the United States. Um, These topics are controversial. Um, You know, educators are a diverse group of people, and there are educators who are more sympathetic to these notions, and then there are educators who are not as sympathetic to these notions. But irregardless of your personal sympathies, this is what the this is what the current education law and the federal laws um, regarding those uh, the interest of education. So. Um, I want to be clear that basically what this has set the stage for is that the federal government has informed states that it is a requirement because schools receive federal funding, although the majority of their funding that they receive is not federal, but they do receive some federal funding. And um, underneath federal law, which states are under federal law, that they have to comply with these these laws. And so states are required to, one, identify who these students are in their schools. So that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of filling out a home language survey. And uh, if there's any language other than English on the home language survey, then um, someone in the school who's trained to give a English proficiency assessment will provide that student with that assessment, which will determine whether or not the student is classified as an emergent bilingual English learner student, which then um, opens the door for them to be classified as an emergent bilingual student, which entitles them to receive certain what are called language supports or language services so that schools can comply with this federal requirement. And on top of that, um, schools are required under the, these education laws that were kind of set. There's many education laws, but um, as far as emergent bilingual students, based on these Supreme Court decisions, that schools are required to also annually assess the language progress of emergent bilingual students. And each state is able to come up with their own system to do this, Um, The federal government is not telling them you have to give this test or that test. So states um, are able to come up with their own systems to do that. So, for example, in the state of Texas, we use TELPAS. Um, So if you have a student who's been in the public schools for a few years and is an emergent bilingual, you've 
hopefully have received TELPAS scores, um, and hopefully you've you've received information on what TELPAS is, what it assesses, and what its general purpose is. So we'll get into more of those details later. Uh, eventually, my goal is to provide you with resources and um, kind of the knowledge of what you'll need to help your student um, do as best as they best they can on the TELPAS assessment and understanding exactly what it is, how it's assessed, what each uh, category means, and what are the requirements to um, meet what are called reclassification criteria, which is um, the status of proficient in the English language to exit English learner status. So my goal is to sort of be the guide or the coach or whatever you want to call it to give you the information on what and why all this is important, what to look for um, in a school or a teacher that's going to be supporting your child in the best way possible. So there'll be lots of information that I'll be able to share about what kind of questions to ask and why and what to listen for um, and to be an advocate for your child uh, because it will be important for you to be that advocate for them. And in order for you to be an advocate for them, you're going to need to have the information to understand what the structure is in the school and what you what you need to ask for um, and what may be negotiable for you and maybe what's what's not negotiable um, as far as what's serving the best interest of, of your student. Um, so that that's that's my goal here as well as to help the students uh, understand how they're being assessed, why they're being assessed, and to celebrate the work that they do. Um, I've been doing working with emergent bilingual ESL kids for 16 years. They're my, they're my favorite students in the school, I guess because I've worked with them. But they're such a unique student. Um, they have such unique stories. They have such unique just uh, traditions, and they just bring, they bring a, a, I don't know, a color away to the school, but they're, they're often feel that in ways that they're less than because they're not sort of part of maybe the majority culture, and it makes me sad um, because they're, they're a unique kid, uh, they're a unique student, and that they're sort of walking the tightrope between two cultures, a home culture and the school culture, and, and they're having to negotiate all of those um, uh, conflicts and tensions. And I just find that that makes for very interesting uh, a student. Uh, and I think they have so much to share. I think everyone has so much to learn from them. And um, I could go on and on, but but anyway, I'm going to stop here because all I really wanted to answer today and provide information on is who are EBs and why they matter. So EBs are students who are in schools who are classified as what's called emergent bilingual. It's synonymous or the same as a student who you may have heard of referred to as an ESL student, and English is a second language student, 
or as a student who's called an English learner. They're all titles that mean the same thing. It means a student who is at home, has a different language at home, and who was assessed in the school with an English proficiency assessment and did not score proficient on that assessment in at least one of the language domains of listening, speaking, reading, or writing. Why they matter is based upon Supreme Court cases in the United States who have determined that in the United States, if we're going to be serious, not even if we're going to be serious about education, but that the law of education is, is that even if students don't speak English, that they're entitled to either instruction in their native language or to English support um, and learning English at the school. And that's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of uh, ways schools are doing that well and ways schools are not doing that well. And so um, I want to make sure that you have the tools to understand what type of school is doing it well, what to look for and what to see, and um, what are realistic milestones as well for your, your, your student in the language learning process uh, based on research and language theory. So we're going to get into a lot of this information. It's a lot to unpack. Um, I appreciate you listening, and I uh, hope that this is helpful. And again, um, I hope that you'll stick around for uh, the next episode, um, which I may go into a little more details about exactly how students obtain the status of emergent bilingual. We touched on some of it, but I may just make it a little more specific and what that looks like in the process of making you aware as a parent and timelines that schools are under and 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 that type of information but um thanks again for listening and uh, take care <laughs>